subpoints in the sermon, but indeed, Lord, this one great theme of your constant faithfulness to your people. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, would you, through the power of your spirit, help that one theme to ring true in our hearts and our minds? And would you connect the dots for us to the situations that each one of us is facing this day and this week, in this time and in this place, so that the gospel of our Lord Jesus, the good news, would come to bear in every way on every life here. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. So the very first thing that we see here that has to do with God's constant faithfulness, we see in the very first verse that I read, chapter 18, verse 1, we see here that the priority that God places on worship and the provision that he makes for it. And we see this in Shiloh. Now, what's so special about Shiloh? Well, nothing really until God said, this is where you're going to assemble, and this is where you're going to put the tent of meeting up. Then it became, of course, very special. It was the center of Israel's worship until the monarchy was established. And then, of course, the center moves to Jerusalem. But this is a big turning point in Israel's history. Of course, they'd been worshiping all along, but they'd been worshiping on the move, constantly going. They'd never had a settled central location. And so during their wanderings in the desert, it might be in this spot, then it's in another spot. It was never settled, and it was not secure, and now it is both. And that's a really big deal. It might not seem like a very big deal to us. We've been worshiping in this location for quite a while. It's just not a big deal. But I can think back not too long ago when we had a a church planter standing on the stage telling us week to week they were never sure if that was going to be the last Sunday that they worshiped in their location before it ceased to be a safe place to meet. Weekly, they were wondering, hmm, wonder where we're going to meet next week. Can we stay here or do we have to move? Right. So it might not be a very big deal to us, but let me assure you, we've got brothers and sisters around the world who would long for a settled and a safe and secure place to worship. This is a big deal for God's people. And so Shiloh here is important because it's both the fulfillment of a promise that God has made and an expectation that his people keep him at the center of everything that they're doing. It's it's a fulfillment of promise. He'd promised to dwell among his people. And it just so happens that right now in our daily Bible reading on the Trinity Together plan, we're, we're slogging our way through Leviticus, right? Taking a little Luke break right now, but we'll be back in Leviticus, I think, before week's in dealing with all these regulations, right? But what are these regulations? These regulations are the means by which God continues to dwell with his people, right? The the tabernacle is all about God's presence. Putting up the tabernacle is representing 
the fact that God has moved into the neighborhood, so to speak, that he's dwelling among his people. And all these nitpicky little regulations we're reading about in Leviticus are given by God as a gracious means for him to maintain his presence with his people. Let's not break fellowship. Let's, let me be able to maintain my presence with you. And so that's what those are all about. God's moved in to the neighborhood. And so at Shiloh, the tent of meeting is to be erected. And in the tent of meeting is the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant, which we've already seen in the book of Joshua. The Ark of the Covenant representing God's very presence among his people. And so in Joshua, it's very fitting that there should be this central location for worship and also for the center of all their living, of, of all that they're doing, even for the apportioning of these remaining lands, that that should happen in his presence and according to his will. God places a high priority on worship and also makes abundant provision for it. Second thing we see here regarding God's faithfulness comes after this first verse in chapter 18. So we see in these first three verses of chapter 18 that the land has been conquered. It lay subdued before them. The battles have been won, but some of these folks have yet to finish the task of possessing the land. The, the ESV says they're, they're putting it off. I kind of like the King James in this instance because it says, how long will you be slack? Right? They're, they're slackers is what they are. They're slackers. God has promised they will possess the land, but they're being slackers and they won't finish what they need to finish. So Shay and I get a lot of parenting advice. Right? We've gotten a lot of it down through the years. You have even given some of the advice to us. All kinds of advice, all kinds of circumstances. Hey, here's what worked for my kids. Right? Um, one bit of advice that we've gotten from multiple sources, um, maybe during the context of traveling with kids or, or situations where you just need the kids to chill out and to be calm, right? Right, the advice that we've gotten from lots of people is, oh, just give them some Benadryl, okay? It'll knock them right out. Well, guess what? Not every child responds to Benadryl the same way. <laughs> For some, in fact, it does knock them out, right? And just in case anyone from DSS happens to be listening to this podcast, this is all hypothetical and theor theoretical, of course. <laughs> Some children are knocked out by Benadryl. Other children are completely wired and amped up, bouncing off the walls the exact opposite of what you had hoped for. Now, what in the world does this have to do with Joshua? I think in many regards, the promises of God are like Benadryl. They have different effects on different folks. For these seven tribes here, the promise of God, 
that he's given them the land to possess and they just need to go in and take it. The promise of God has knocked them out. The promise of God has chilled them out to the point that they just sat there and did nothing. And for some, that's what the promises of God do. But we've already seen, even in Joshua, how God's promises are to rightly be used. They should have just the opposite effect. We've seen how Joshua heard the repeated refrain, the repeated promise of God's faithfulness. I'm giving you the land. I will do it over and over and over again. And we've seen Joshua on many occasions hear that promise repeated and leap into action. Hear that promise repeated and not sit back and say, oh, well, isn't that nice? But hear that promise repeated and say, okay, boys, let's go. Let's go. And so my my question for you this morning is, do God's promises lull you to sleep? Or do they give you the confidence and the courage to get off your rear and to go do something? I think perhaps Peter was, was addressing something similar to this in his second letter. Um, some great verses in the first chapter. There they are. Starting in verse 3. His divine power, which in and of itself is a promise has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now look at verse 5. Here's the right use of God's powerful Precious and very great promises. For this very reason, make every effort. The vernacular is get off your rear, right? To supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self control, and self control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours, and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. What do God's promises do for you? Do they sedate you? Oh, well, isn't that nice? That's so wonderful what God has promised to do. Or do they energize you? Do do they give you the confidence and the courage to step out and claim for yourself, that which he's promised. Third thing to see regarding God's faithfulness is this notion of his, of his justice. His justice that is practical, it is prioritized, and it is prophetic. And we see this really pretty clearly in chapter 20 with these cities of refuge. Right? So the, these are places that you can run if you accidentally killed somebody, okay, it happens, right? 
the, the axe head flies off the handle. Right? Unintentional, without premeditation, right? You can't hate somebody ahead of time and purposefully loosen up the axe head and say, hey, come chop wood with me. No. The, the fullest explanation of these cities is in Numbers 35. God commanded them back in Exodus. There's a full uh, discourse on them in Numbers 35 that you can read or that you will read eventually as we progress through the Scriptures. They don't get the full treatment here, but we do see three pretty important things about them. Number one, just how practical God's help is here. Right? God's help is practical. His desire is for justice to flourish. And so if justice is going to flourish, it's got to be accessible. Right? So, so rather than have a, a hot-headed relative come and seek revenge, which if you look at the Old Testament law, is the appropriate thing to happen if the murder had been intentional, premeditated, right? This concept of an avenger of blood, that's part of the law here. That's how justice was to be enacted, okay? But you got to make sure you're dealing with a real murder here and not an unintentional accidental killing. And so in order to prevent a hot-headed relative from coming and making things worse, you got to have somewhere to run until things can be sorted out. Presumably at which time innocence could be proved. And so these cities of refuge are practical because they're accessible. There are six of them and they're well laid out geographically in Israel. It gives the guy a fighting chance to get somewhere safe. Okay? So they're practical. But we also see God's priorities, what he prioritizes come through. And so one is obviously life. So God places a high, high value on life. And in this circumstance, one life has already been lost. So let's take great pains to ensure that another life is not lost needlessly on top of this one. Make sure that innocent blood isn't spilled on the land where God is trying to dwell with his people. Another priority we see in verse 9 is that this is not just for God's people, but it's also for those who happen to be in their midst. It's also for the sojourner. It's for those without the rights and protections of citizenship. See, God's desire is for justice to extend to all peoples, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your place of birth. God's justice should extend. Uh, The third P in this point, this prophetic point. I really do think that these cities of refuge in a small way prophesy about our coming Savior. About this refuge that is needed. About this asylum that is needed. You see, these cities of refuge are, in a real sense, a blessing and a curse. Right? It's a blessing if you can get to one and you can keep from losing your head. Okay? That's a blessing. Right? But it's a curse in the sense of you're stuck there. Right? You got asylum, 
but you're stuck. You can't leave. If you leave, you subject yourself to possibly being killed in revenge. And so you're stuck there with this double problem until verse 6. Verse 6 says, until you've stood before the congregation, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Now, is this technically a prophecy about the coming Christ? No, it's not. For God's people at the time, it would have been a picture of his justice and his mercy and this notion of until the death of him who is the high priest really would kind of refer to to the end of an era, right? You've got to remain there until the end of an era, until leadership changes for an allotted time. But for us, living on the other side of the cross, for us living, in, and we have the book of Hebrews in our scriptures that shows at great length how Christ is, in fact, our great high priest. That shows, in fact, how his death does, in fact, resolve our double problem. How the hymn writer so succinctly put it that, that he would be of sin the double cure. Right? We've got a double problem. Right? There's sin's guilt and there's sin's power. And our high priest, in, in and through his death, resolves both of those for us. So I do think that in a small way, there's a hint for us. There's a hint for us. This, this manslayer's problem is going to be resolved with the death of the high priest. How can we not read that and be thinking of the death of our high priest? The fourth thing we see from these verses regarding God's great faithfulness is a pattern for prayer. In the first three verses of chapter 21, So we've got the heads of the the families of the Levites coming. And they're saying, hey, give us our land. Give us our land that's been promised. Right? Well, what's the big deal about this? Well, it is the third example, at least the third example in Joshua, where folks actually take God's word at face value. God promised, God said, God commanded, and folks actually believe it. And they act on it, and they lay claim to it. Right? The first we saw back in chapter 14 with Caleb. Caleb comes up and says, hey, a really long time ago, God had promised me this certain area of land, and I would like to to claim that now, please. Then we saw it in chapter 17 with the daughters of Zelophehad, right? Uh, These daughters born to a father who had no sons. And so they were just kind of out of luck when it came to inheritance. And so they approached Moses way back when and said, hey, why can't we inherit our father's land? He didn't have any sons. What about us? And so Moses inquires to the Lord, And the Lord says, yes, they can inherit the land. And so scads of years later, they come back and they say, excuse me, uh, but the Lord promised that we could inherit this land and we're here now to claim it. 
They actually showed up and claimed what God had promised. And so here in chapter 21, it's the Levites' turn to do that exact same thing. God had commanded that the Levites be given land. Right? They didn't have an inheritance as the servants of God, but they were supposed to be given land to use for them and for their pasture. And so they came, and so they claimed what God had promised. And this is the pattern that we see in Joshua, and this ought to be the pattern for our prayer. What God promises, His people need to lay claim to. What has God promised you that you need to boldly claim? What is it? The Bible is full and overflowing. So let me just give you three to get you started, to get you thinking. Three things that you ought to be boldly claiming in prayer. And the first is one that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. He has promised to be your God and to be a God to your children. And you need to boldly claim that. I need to boldly claim that. I need to boldly ask for the powerful and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of my children. And it doesn't matter how old your kids are. To pray that prayer and to boldly lay claim to that promise. Second thing, God has promised to conform you to Christ. The verse after everybody's favorite verse in Romans 8 is Romans 8, 29, right? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's a promise in the will of God that you and I be conformed to Christ, That's a promise that we need to boldly lay claim to in prayer. Third example pertains to evangelism. If you read in Revelation, it's a beautiful and graphic depiction of everyone gathered around the throne worshiping the Lamb. And who is there gathered around the throne but people from every tribe and tongue and language and people? gathered together on their knees, on their faces, worshiping the Lamb who was slain. These are your neighbors. These are your co-workers. These are the neighbors and friends of the missionaries that we support around the world. They're out there and God has promised to draw them to himself. Do we boldly lay claim to these promises? Is it your pattern for prayer? See, very often we don't know what to pray. Gosh, is it is it the will of the God? Is it the will of God to, to pray for such and such to happen? 
And there are some things that we legitimately just don't know. But the Bible is chock full of things that we legitimately do know. It is His will and we should boldly lay claim to in our prayers. Fifthly and finally, praise. Praise for His faithfulness. Now let's look at these last three verses in chapter 21. I've been leaning heavily on uh, Dr. Ralph Davis's commentary for Joshua. It's so, so good. And he calls these three verses the jugular vein of Joshua. Here it is. It all comes to a head. It's an amazing summary. So try to take in the magnitude of this, if you will. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it. And they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Just let the magnitude of that sink in. Now, this doesn't mean that everything came easily. It doesn't mean... As we've already seen, that they didn't get their rear ends kicked at AI the first time. It doesn't mean that it always looked like things would be fulfilled. I mean, if you, if you look over the whole of Israel's history to this point, it very often did not look like anything was ever going to happen. Right? God makes promises early on in Genesis. Right? I'm going to be your God. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you people. I'm going to multiply you. And then they're enslaved in Egypt. They ain't got no land. Not very prosperous while they're enslaved. But then they get out. But then they wander in the desert for 40 years. And all except for Caleb and Joshua die in the wilderness. It often looked very bleak for long periods of time. Nevertheless, with the passing of time, time proves him absolutely faithful in every possible way. Not sure where many of you are this morning. I know where some of you are this morning. I don't know where everyone is, what you're facing, which promise you're desperately clinging to, struggling to believe, despite all appearances around you. But you need to understand this you will reach the end. And you will be able to say with Joshua every single word, every single word 
proved true. Not a single word failed, but in fact, all came to pass. Let's pray. Our Father, you're faithful. And you have chosen through this book to beat that point into our heads over and over and over. And it's obviously because we need it. So Lord, help us. Help the reality of your faithfulness to penetrate our forgetful and often stubborn hearts. Help the pattern of our prayers to be to boldly lay claim to that which you've promised. See your goodness, to see your faithfulness, to see the, the priority that you place on it, our worship. That that's woven in here as well, Lord. And help us ultimately to look to, to the death of our high priest. It's the greatest sign of your faithfulness. The greatest thing that we need to cling to even as we wait for you to fulfill all of your promises to us. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please stand. Let's sing in response.